Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 9th of December 2019 and this is episode 140. On today's podcast, I talk to former Cabinet Minister and MP David Laws about his latest book, Who Killed Kitchener? Examining the life and death of Field Marshal Lord Kitchener and the rumours and the conspiracy theories that surrounded his death. This is published by Biteback Publishing. I spoke to David over the interweb from his home in England. Hi David, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Please could you start by introducing yourself and how you became interested in Lord Kitchener and his untimely death? Yeah, I'm David Laws, uh, author of Who Killed Kitchener, and prior to that I was the MP for Yeovil in Somerset. I suppose before politics and before economics, history and military history in particular was one of my great passions, and I was always interested in Kitchener as a military leader, but also intrigued by all of the conspiracy stories around his death in 1916. He was the only uh, member of cabinet ever to die on active service. And for a hundred years after his death in 1916, the most extraordinary range of conspiracy stories uh, has spread out around him. And trying to get to the bottom of that was something that I thought would be interesting. Let's start at the beginning. Can you tell us about Kitchener's early life and childhood? Yes, Kitchener was born bang in the centre of the 19th uh, century in 1850, uh, in the early Victorian period. He was um, the son uh, of English parents, but he grew up in the southwest of Ireland in a fairly cold uh, family home emotionally. His mother died very early on when he was only 14. And he was really brought up under the supervision of his father, who was a former military man who ran the household uh, timetables in a very military style, uh, not, I think, a very emotionally supportive individual and somebody who was rather eccentric. He uh, apparently used to sleep under cut-up newspaper sheets each night because he thought that there was something unhygienic about using ordinary sheets. So it wasn't a conventional upbringing. It would have been, I think, a bit lonely and uh, a bit detached uh, from friends because he was educated to a large extent at home. Now, Herbert um, chose the army as a professional soldier and then rose to become a field marshal. Can you tell us about his military and colonial career up to the outbreak of the Great War? Yes, I think anyone who knew um, Kitchener in his early days would have been surprised that he ended up as a field marshal and this great military leader. He went into the military, really, because that was his father's background. He wasn't the star candidate by any means. He uh, was eventually admitted to the uh, Royal Academy, Royal Military Academy in Woolwich, where engineers and artillery officers uh, trained. He was an average performer on that. And he then went off to join the Palestinian uh, Exploration Fund in 1874 and then began a history of links with some of the key uh, battlegrounds, I suppose, of uh, Imperial uh, Britain, which lasted between that time uh, to the outbreak of the First World War. He ended up in particular commanding a military operation to uh, take on the dervish forces in Sudan in the 1890s to avenge essentially the death of General Gordon, who had been killed in Khartoum in 1885 to the great shock of the British people in Queen Victoria herself. 
himself that he oversaw that military operation uh, and saw it through to a successful conclusion, which was something that really secured his reputation with the British public and with the British establishment. It made him a military star of the late Victorian era who everybody in the country would have known about. And then very quickly after fighting that successful campaign, he managed to get himself posted off to South Africa to fight in the Boer War to lead British forces uh, between 1900 and 1902. He took over the leadership of that campaign at a time when it looked as if it was pretty much, the war was pretty much won, and then found himself fighting a very difficult guerrilla campaign against the Boers. But he saw that through to a conclusion, and the victories in South Africa and in the Sudan meant that he had this phenomenal reputation amongst the British public as really the most effective and impressive uh, military leader of the late Victorian era. And did this sort of public adulation continue to the First World War, and was it universal? His reputation amongst members of the public was very high. They remembered the military successes in the Sudan and in South Africa. They were aware of the work that he did probably in Egypt and in India, more on the civil front than on the military front. But there were some clouds on uh, the horizon. There were some clouds because of uh, some of the things that had happened um, associated with the victories in the Sudan and in South Africa. In the Sudan in particular, after the Battle of Omdurman, a large number of the dervish uh, troops appeared to have been killed by the by the British-led forces rather than taken into captivity. And in South Africa, Kitchener had rounded up many Boer women, children and adults and put them into so-called concentration camps to really impose a control over Boer-occupied territory and to make it easier for the British military to take control of it. And many of those Boer uh, farmers, many of the men, uh, women and children had died in those concentration camps. And there was something of a, an outrage of that in the British Parliament, which damaged Kitchener's reputation, particularly amongst the uh, liberals in the British Parliament, who thought that some of the methods that he used were unacceptable. So away from the public uh, perspective, that Kitchener had. What was his private um, character like and how did people find him when they met him? Kitchener was a very distant and aloof man. That's what most people found. They found it difficult to get through to him. They felt he was a very private individual and his reputation therefore was very much as somebody who it was difficult to communicate easily with. He didn't like sharing information. He didn't like bringing people into his trust and confidence. He had a small number of military staff officers who worked for him, who were very close to him and he was close to over long periods of time. And those individuals probably saw a more relaxed, a more sort of personal vision of this steely field marshal. But that was not a, a private um, image that most people were able to, to get any impression of. Now, in August 1914, he was appointed uh, Secretary of State for War. How did he perform in this role in the two years, I suppose, he held it? Kitchener started off as Secretary of State for War very well. He was the first military leader, indeed, perhaps the first member of the government, to realise that this war that people were hoping would be over by Christmas was actually going to last three or four years. And Kitchener immediately started planning for a long war. He started planning for the recruitment of hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of troops. We put in train uh, the early actions in order to significantly increase the production of equipment and ammunition. And in that sense, he was quite far-seeing. He was also quite 
strategically aware. He could look beyond the battlefields of the Western Front and understand that this war against the Germans was only really going to be won if all of the Allied nations could be kept in the fight to keep up the pressure on Germany. So he was acutely aware of the importance of Russia and how Russian attacks and Russian pressure on the east of uh, Germany could help to pin down German forces and help the French and British to cope with the very powerful German army. But as the war went on and the stalemate on the Western Front continued with high casualties on all sides, really, for all armies, Kitchener began to get the blame for some of that stalemate. And he also eventually agreed to an operation in Gallipoli in in, uh, Turkey, which was a notable failure. It was an attempt, really, to use naval forces to achieve a bit of a breakthrough on the Eastern Front, relieve some of the pressure on the Russian forces. But it was really a failure. It couldn't successfully take place without ground forces. And eventually, when ground forces were sucked in, it was too late. Turkish army had deployed large numbers of troops. So as the uh, war ground on, Kitchener, as Secretary of State and military leader, began to pick up more of the criticism, particularly from political colleagues, for the lack of progress and also a perceived lack of willingness on his part to uh, communicate with political colleagues and share responsibility for the war's direction with them. I wonder whether you could unpack a bit uh, his reputation with his political colleagues like Churchill and Asquith and also his military and uh, his relationships with his military uh, colleagues. Kitchener had a very low opinion of almost all politicians. He thought that politicians made generally bad strategic decisions on foreign policy and military matters. He thought that politicians should be kept away from military decision making as much as possible. And he also had uh, pretty bad relations with many of uh, his senior generals, including General French, the British commander in France. There wasn't any love lost between the two of them. There wasn't any great trust. Uh, Kitchener didn't think that General French was trying to do it, was doing a good job, and he even attempted to replace him at one stage. So, although Kitchener was well respected by the British public, he gradually began to lose the confidence of the cabinet and of some of the senior military commanders. And in spite of that, he failed to share information with them. He didn't really trust them. Indeed, on one occasion where he was challenged about whether he could give more information to the cabinet about his military plans, he commented, privately to a friend that if he told the cabinet about military plans then within 24 hours most of them would tell have told their wives about it. The party said from David Lloyd George who would tell other people's wives. They was not a man that trusted his political colleagues and they in turn began to have serious doubts about him. I mean one intriguing detail that comes from your book that might have um, led to people not trusting Kitchener was his habit at kleptomania. You indicate that he had a tendency to minor larceny. What did he steal And what was his motivation for this? Well, as I think Kitchener became more well-known, as he had more military awards and the recognition amongst the the population that he did through winning these great military victories, he seemed to think he could get away with anything he wanted to. He he had some rather odd, for a military man, pastimes, including collecting porcelain and flower arranging. And when he visited 
uh, other people's properties, big sort of country houses. He seemed to think that he only needed to uh, pay a compliment for some item of porcelain or some other decoration for people to give those items to him. And when people didn't take the hint, he seemed to just nab the items and walk off out with them. And there are, there are some stories about friends of his actually removing some sort of precious items from their houses and hiding them before he came round for a for a weekend, because he did have this have this habit of pinching uh, household items from other people's properties where he liked them. Now, we reached the summer of early 1916, and Kitchener was appointed to go on a diplomatic Russian to Imperial Russia. What was the purpose of this visit, and why was he sent? In the middle of 1916, there was real worry about the pressure on the Russian forces and whether or not Russia could hold out. And there was an understanding that if Germany defeated Russia, then all all of those German forces could be switched to the Western Front and potentially they could knock France and the United Kingdom out of the war. So Britain had been trying to prop up Russia and they'd been sending out some military resources and some financial assistance. And in 1916, it was decided that there really needed to be a military operation, a military visit to go to Russia to look into the Russians' financial needs and their military needs, not only to give them the support they needed, but also to figure out how they were going to repay the loans that the British Treasury had been extending to them. And initially, that trip was going to include not only Kitchener, the Secretary of State for War, but also the Chancellor of the Exchequer, David Lloyd George. And it was only relatively late in the day that Lloyd George had his um, his part in the visit postponed and ultimately cancelled when Asquith, the Prime Minister, decided that Lloyd George was needed in Ireland to help to bring peace after the uh, so-called Easter uprising. Um, so Kitchener, it was decided, would be the only cabinet member to go and a military delegation of some officers and some senior civil servants uh, was put together to support him. We know that en route to the ship that he was travelling in, the armoured cruiser HMS Hampshire, sunk, killing Kitchener, we presume, and most of the ship's company. Can you unpack the sequence of events that led to this um, sinking of the Hampshire? Yeah, the sinking of Hampshire on the 5th of June 1916 occurred just after the Royal Navy had fought the biggest maritime battle of the First World War. Admiral Jenico had taken on um, the might of the German Navy, and instead of securing the expected victory, he actually lost more uh, British vessels than he managed to sink German vessels. So the Royal Navy was in a, a state of um, disarray, really, when Kitchener arrived at the Scarpa Flow naval base in the Orkneys to begin his trip to Russia on the 5th of June. The Ad British Admiral, uh, Lord Jellicoe, had uh, arranged HMS Hampshire, the armoured cruiser, to take Kitchener, and he'd also allocated two uh, small destroyers to escort Hampshire safely out of the waters around Scarpa Flow, where it was known that there were often German submarines patrolling. Kitchener wanted to make the journey as rapidly as possible. He couldn't share this information with Lord Jellicoe, but a major British offensive on the Somme was planned for the end of June 1916, and Kitchener wanted to be back for that offensive. So he wanted a really quite short visit to Russia. The original plan had been to send HMS Hampshire up the east side of the Orkneys on the route that was usually used by naval vessels. But at the very last minute, indeed on the day of the sailing of HMS Hampshire, Admiral Jellicoe made a last minute decision to switch the route of HMS Hampshire 
Hampshire from the east coast of the Orkneys to the west coast. And he did that because a massive area of low pressure, a huge storm, was making its way across from west to east above the Orkney Islands. And it was believed at that time that the wind would be blowing head on into HMS Hampshire as, he, as she made her way to the northeast. And that that would mean that the destroyer escorts were not able to keep up with her. So at the very last minute, the route of Hampshire was switched, and that turned out to be a disastrous decision. So how was the death of Lord Kitchener gre- greeted by the, the public in June 1916 once they heard that his ship had sunk? There was a huge outpouring of grief in uh, Britain when the news came through that Kitchener and his delegation had all been lost. He, for decades, had been the the face of uh, the British Army. He was a highly regarded uh, Secretary of State for War by the ordinary public in Britain. And they were shocked that somebody this important could be lost on active service in this way. So the death of Kitchener in June 1916 created as much public shock as, say, the, the death of Princess Diana in our own times. It was a major uh, shock to the nation. The other thing that, that that was very shocking was also the very high death toll of the Hampshire's uh, company in terms that the, the boat or the ship rather found a very close to Scarpa flow. It took around half an hour to sink and it was in sight of land and it seems remarkable that uh, a ship of that size could sink with so many on board given it was so close to um, other vessels that could have come to its aid. Yes, there were 749 people on uh, Hampshire when she was blown up by a German mine making her way up the west side of the Orkneys. And only 12 of those people got to shore in spite of the fact that Hampshire could be seen sinking in almost midsummer. So, so the light was there right into the evening and people on Orkney could actually see the Hampshire as she was going down. But there were a number of reasons why so many of those on board died. Firstly, when HMS Hampshire was rerouted by Admiral Jellicoe up the west side of the Orkneys in order to avoid the gale force winds that were supposed to be blowing down from the northeast. Unfortunately, just at the moment that Hampshire set sail, the winds turned round and blew right into the face of Hampshire. And that meant that the escorting destroyers were not able to keep up and they were actually sent back to port. So when HMS Hampshire hit the German mine, as it turned out, uh, there were no other escorting vessels with her. In addition, uh, she was hit right in the middle of a fourth mine gale in some of the coldest weather in the Orkneys for that type of year, with the seas almost um, freezing cold. And Hampshire herself sank very, very quickly because of the effect of the explosion on her. So what you had was a vessel going down quickly in terrible conditions and with no other vessels anywhere nearby to rescue those who ended up in the water. And worse still, when Hampshire was blown up, the electric power went out on the vessel. And as a consequence, none of the boats on board to uh, look after people when Hampshire went down, none of them were actually able to be lowered into the water. Many of the sailors got on board those boats and hoped that as Hampshire gradually settled in the water, the boats could float off. But unfortunately, at the last moment as Hampshire was sinking, it flipped upside down and sucked down into the water all of the sailors on board those boats. Now, very soon after Kitchener passed away, theories about his death started to circulate. What were these conspiracy theories and did they have any basis in fact? There were an astonishing range of conspiracy stories. 
Tories. Some claimed that the British government wanted to get rid of Kitchener. And there was an element of truth in that they did actually, many of the cabinet wanted to remove him as Secretary of State for war, but they obviously didn't want him to be killed. But there were rumours that, that the cabinet were trying to get rid of him. There were rumours that people on the islands of Orkney were not allowed to help in the rescue mission, and that was regarded as suspicious. There were rumours that the Germans knew about the sailing of Hampshire and had been tipped off and were there to the sinker, perhaps with German submarines firing torpedoes. There were rumours that the Russians had betrayed him. There were rumours that the Irish had placed bombs on board the ship. And there was even a, a rumour that a South African spy had got on board, signalled to a German submarine, uh, given away Hampshire's position, and then the spy had escaped on board a German submarine. In each case, there was usually some small nugget of a fact that was behind uh, the conspiracy theory. But all of the conspiracy theories actually turn out when you analyse them carefully to be nonsense. Unfortunately, the, the British Admiralty unintentionally gave some credibility to the conspiracy stories by failing to release a lot of the information around the New Hampshire not just during the war, but for decades afterwards. Indeed, the final files about the sinking of Hampshire were not released until almost 100 years after the Hampshire had sunk in 1916. Now, one of the authors of these conspiracy theories was Frank Power. What stories did he tell and, and how did the authorities respond to his allegations? Frank Power was a pretty low-grade uh, journalist who from 1916 onwards, for the best part of a decade, wrote a whole series of conspiracy stories about Kitchener's death. Not all of them actually uh, consistent with each other, but picking up on every allegation that was made, every fact that didn't seem to be supported by another fact, every bit of uh, gossip and rumour that was around. And Frank Power, who, whose real name was actually Arthur Freeman, drove the British authorities insane. These stories and conspiracies were aired in Parliament. Uh, allegations were made by a number of MPs on the floor of the House of Commons. Uh, there were constant stories in the newspapers. And eventually, uh, the British authorities were driven so insane by all the conspiracy stories that they did something very unusual. And 10 years after the sinking of Hampshire, they published a white paper to try to rebut all of the stories that Frank Power and others had been spreading. Eventually, Frank Power overreached himself, claiming to have found Kitchener's body in Scandinavia. He claimed that it had been washed up and buried in Scandinavia and that he was going to bring it back to the United Kingdom. He brought a coffin back into Waterloo Station and took it to the local undertakers, claimed that it was Kitchener's body. But unfortunately for him, the Home Office seized the coffin, crowbarred it open and found that it was empty apart from a small uh, layer of tar at the bottom of the coffin to give it a feeling of weight. And after that incident, Power's credibility really was shot through and never and never recovered. I think what's really interesting from a lot of these theories is that we think that conspiracy theories are a relatively modern idea with fake news and, and things like that. But politicians and press during and after the First World War still had you know, great faith in these stories. Why do they have so much traction with the public at the time? I think it is interesting to see that a lot of the ingredients in conspiracy stories, sort of media chasing uh, members of parliament, revenue chasing newspapers, journalists who want to make their name, they, they were all there in 1916, just as they are uh, here with us today. I suppose the problem is that firstly, there are some people who just love to believe conspiracy stories. And there are all 
always discrepancies in the information received in cases such as this, where something really dramatic happens, there is information collected from multiple different sources, and sometimes the information doesn't add up, which therefore can feed conspiracy stories. But you also had in 1916 what you still have today, which is the tendency of the authorities not to want to be transparent, the tendency of the authorities to want to cover things up, to hold inquiries very rapidly and out of the public eye. And that's what happened in 1916 after Kitchener's death. There was a very uh, short investigation that was carried out by the Admiralty itself within 24, 48 hours of Hampshire going down. That concluded basically that, that nothing was done wrong and there was nothing really that could have prevented the ship from sinking. And after that, the UK authorities really didn't want to give out any more information about what had happened. And that simply created a vacuum in which the conspiracy stories could, could multiply. Now, Kitchener's reputation today is still reasonably tarnished, and you could say he looks very similar to General Melchett, or maybe the other way around. Why do you think he's still regarded as a bit of a sort of bungler or buffoon? Well, it is true that Kitchener's reputation today is tarnished. He's seen as a great poster, that recruiting poster of the First World War, but not as a great man or a great military leader anymore. That's partly, I think, because the modern generation are not aware of his successes in the Sudan and in South Africa, bringing to a conclusion of what could have been a very difficult war with the Boer uh, guerrillas operating in their own home environment. But it's also that he lost his life right in the middle of the First World War, when British troops were still pinned down on the Western Front, uh, when huge human resources were being thrown at German emplacements and, and barbed wire with tens of thousands of lives being lost over short periods of time. So his face, his visage has now become the, the sort of image of the ignorant, complacent, red top general of the First World War. Actually, that's rather unfair to him. And he struggled throughout the first couple of years of, of the war with the understanding that actually it was going to be very difficult to break through the German lines, but also the, the necessity of taking some action, putting some pressure on the Germans because of the, the fact that if we didn't in the West, then there was a real risk that the Russians could be knocked out of the war. Had Kitchener survived 1916, had he managed to uh, cling on a secretary state for war to the end of the war, which I think is likely, then his reputation might have a different gloss on it than it has today. He would then, I think, have been more likely to be seen to be the man who in 1914 put in place the necessary resources, human resources and military resources, which allowed us eventually to emerge from, from having a really very small British army at the beginning of the war in 1914 to having forces on a scale that could defeat the might of Germany four years later. You've become very intimate with him, writing a biography of him and his legacy. What do you make of him? I think that, um, that Kitchener's under estimated in a couple of respects. Firstly, that, that people don't any longer credit him so easily with some of the military successes in South Africa, in the Sudan, and particularly some of those strategic decisions he took early in the First World War. But in addition, they don't understand often some of the really important work that he did in bringing peace and human progress in some of the countries where he remained after the conflicts, essentially as the, as the, um, the military 
military uh, representative on the ground. So in the Sudan, after the Battle of Omdurman and after that campaign was successfully concluded, he did quite a lot of work to build up Sudan again after the war, to extend uh, rights to some of the communities who might otherwise not have expected sympathy from an imperial power. He helped to bring the South Africa war to a close in 1902 when it could easily have gone on for many more years, given the views of the uh, civilian authorities on the British side out in South Africa, who were really determined to force a total defeat on the Boers. But Kitchener actually put in place discussions with the, with the Boer leaders, which allowed them to eventually sign a, a peace treaty. And some of these aspects, the peacetime aspects, the peace-bringing aspects of Kitchener, are far less well understood today. And I think a perspective on some of the work that he did to bring peace in these lands is important to understand the fully rounded man. Do you think there's anything that we can learn from his life and death, you know, in terms of trying to learn from history? What can, te- what can Kitchener teach us? I think that one of the things that we can learn from Kitchener is the importance of planning and preparation. He managed to deliver military victories in the Sudan and in South Africa by a rigorous focus on planning and organisation. There was nothing accidental about the victories in the Sudan or South Africa. Indeed, in Sudan, he had to build an entire railway across one of the bleakest deserts in the world in order to move a sufficient army to take on tens of thousands of dervish troops. And it was that work on planning and organisation that was so important early on in the First World War to give us the troops that enabled us to stay in the battle against the, the might of Germany's army. So we have that to learn from Kitchener. And I think we we have also to learn from Kitchener and the conspiracies around his death, just how easy it is for conspiracies to spread when big news stories such as this break. There are always people who want to make claims. There are always people in the media who want to hype stories up to have an interest in doing that. And there is always the tendency of the government and the authorities to want to cover up, to want to refuse to give to put information out into the public sphere and that then tends to feed the conspiracy stories rather than killing them off so i think we have those two things to learn today from kitchener and the circumstances surrounding his death finally david christmas is approaching fast where can people find out more about your book well the publisher of my book is bite back um, publishing and people can easily go online to find out about that it's also obviously available through all of the uh, usual online and offline booksellers uh, there's also a bbc history podcast about the the book that people might also want to to look at. David, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Buthworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time... <laughs>